want to begin this morning by directing your attention to an article that appeared in Newsweek magazine not very long ago. And the article basically said this, Christianity in America is becoming less and less Christian. Their observation was that Christianity in America is looking less and less like historic Christianity, and more significantly, it's looking less and less like biblical Christianity. In fact, they went so far as to suggest it's looking more and more like other religions, specifically Christianity in America is looking more and more like Hinduism. It's not my intent this morning to talk about why they said that, other than to just point out the fact that they said it. That might offend you. You might think, well, Newsweek, who do they think they are saying that we are looking more and more like Hindus? I'm offended. Or you might say, maybe maybe they have a point there, but that just shows that America's going downhill. Ah, so you can blame Newsweek, you can blame America, or you can stop and say, The church is supposed to be the pillar and the support of the truth, the Bible says. They seem to actually have a point because we're looking less and less like historic biblical Christianity and more and more like other religions like Hinduism. Maybe what we need to do is not be mad at Newsweek. Maybe we need to thank Newsweek and not be mad at America because it's going downhill, but instead stop and look in the church's mirror and to say wait a minute have we forgotten our first love in Revelation chapter 2 Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus and they were doing all kinds of ministry all kinds of things in the name of Christ and he tells them that they have forgotten their first love which would be they've forgotten their love for Christ. That it all starts there and it all ends there. And so I'm I'm so thankful for Newsweek on this particular occasion. And I'm thankful that they've pointed it out because I actually think they're right. Because sadly, more and more, we're looking less and less like the Christianity we see in the Bible, committed to the supremacy of Christ. Christ in all things, like the early Christians who were first called Christians, as we talked about last time, in Acts 11, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, were called Christians. Why were they called Christians? Because they loved Christ. Because they loved Christ because He lived a perfect life on their behalf and He obeyed the law for them and that He died a sinner's death and atoned for their sins and He rose again from the dead for them and so they praised him and they worshiped him to the point where they were called Christians they were fanatics for Christ they lived lives of worship and thanksgiving because of what Christ had had done and as I have mentioned before sometimes this was a compliment to them but sometimes it actually was an insult but either way in a sense they were Christians in the true sense of the word I also want to remind you this morning that Jesus in Matthew 7 is very clear that there are some people who say they're Christians. They name the name of Christ like us. And they're not really Christians. So this is a good time for us to to stop and look in that church mirror, if you will, 
to not blame anyone other than ourselves. This is us. This is on our watch, your watch and my watch. We're living right now. Let's not blame another generation. Does our Christianity really focus on Christ and the distinctives that flow out of that? Well, I want to be a Christian, not just in name only. And I trust that most of you are the same way. We want to be a genuinely thoroughgoing Christian church known for our love for Christ, the real thing. And so what we're doing is we're looking at a number of factors that would compromise that as we seek to focus on Christ so that we would not fall prey to these compromises. Beginning last week, we began looking at a list of isms, I'm calling them, uh, problems, difficulties, challenges, underminings. And I said we're going to look at eight isms that undermine the centrality of Christ and those central objective truths that surround him. The list has grown to nine. So we're working on nine isms. And if the spirit so leads me, the list may be good, may get longer as I'm preaching today. I don't know. I'm open. <laughs> so I think we'll stop at nine, but we won't get through all nine of them this morning. I'm not going to regurgitate what we talked about last week, but maybe give some new information that might be helpful. Again, our goal is not to focus on the isms. Our goal is to do what the author of Hebrews says, and that is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That is our goal. Our goal is to love Christ and to remember He is our first love. Our goal is to have our Christianity actually have the essence of Christianity, to not only say Christianity. And so let's look at some of these current as well as historic isms that challenge the Christianness, if you will, of Christianity. The first one we looked at last time was moralism. Moralism is something that de-Christianizes the Christian church. It has historically and it is even today and it's something we want to be aware of. Moralism is basically you try to be a uh, good person and if you try to be a good person by following biblical principles, then everything is going to be good with you. And so we get into this mode of teaching biblical principles and teaching biblical principles saying things like, if you follow these principles from this Bible character, then everything is going to be fine in your life. We do this when it's moralism apart from the centrality of Christ. We assume the gospel. We're not deliberate about the gospel. We start sounding like if you just follow principles from David's life, God will accept you. And we forget Romans chapter 4, which is great text when it comes to this, as we've looked at it before in detail. In Romans chapter 4, he's act, David's actually used as an illustration of someone who's such a sinner that he needs righteousness credited to him. He needs Christ's righteousness. David needs the gospel. He uses Abraham as well. We have this huge danger, my friends, especially in churches like Omaha Bible Church, where we want to be biblical. And we want to preach the word and we want to work our way through the whole Bible, whole counsel of God. We have a great danger that we'll forget that we actually are Christians. And that even those big heroes of the faith were not good enough in and of themselves to earn the favor of God. And therefore we're treading on very dangerous ground when even though we might not mean to say it, we're communicating to people, if you just follow their good example, it will be okay with you. When it wasn't okay with them. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians, and just as a good text to see that this is something that we can fall prey to so easily. If you're new to the Bible, I just looked up in that Bible we gave you. It's page 832 to see what's happening in in Galatia, in the Galatian church. They're plagued with a number of things, but one thing they're starting to do is they're starting to assume the gospel, and they're falling, falling into this kind of moralistic kind of mindset that they can just do things and be good and It's not true. Look at chapter 1, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It is blowing my mind, the Apostle Paul says. We just talked about this, right? You know the gospel, and yet you're moving into this realm of gospel plus moralism and he's saying it's so quick and easy don't do it though and if it happened that quickly then no doubt it can happen quickly to us and remember the people he's having to deal with are not people who don't believe the Bible's true he's dealing with those who are committed to Judeo-Christian values and who believe the Bible is true from front to end like us moralism and we can fall into moralism Easily, where we just say, let's follow this example. Maybe another illustration we didn't talk about last time, which kind of makes the point it's a little bit um, offensive sometimes because it challenges maybe our past or our present. Think about Esther for a moment. Queen Esther. Think about those Bible studies you're going to go to, that it's all about the character study of Esther. And let's just be better Esthers. Well, if you're going to have a Bible study like that, I'm just going to make sure my daughters or my wife doesn't go. What was was Esther, the Jewish girl, woman, doing joining the harem of a pagan king? That's, That's not a very good example. You say, are you against the book of Esther? No, I'm all for the book of Esther. It's a great... I I actually do want my wife and daughters to go to the study. But you know what I want them to see? Not how great Esther is, because actually Esther's commitment is highly questionable. At best. Saying it nicely. She's leaving a little room. God used Esther providentially, even amidst her apparent compromise. He used her to have her at the right place at the right time from the grand scheme of things to work all things together for good, Romans 8, so that the Jewish people wouldn't be annihilated. So that, from a human perspective, Matthew 1 could still be in our Bibles. So that there could be a Messiah. Because from a human perspective, there would be no Messiah if the Jewish people would have been annihilated, which is what would have happened from a human perspective if Esther wouldn't have been where she was. Moralism says, be like Esther. And it actually is catastrophic if you just think. Because you don't really want to be like Esther. Christianity says, this book is in the Bible for a reason. Why is it here? It's to show us that God providentially works. Esther, the book that never even mentions the name of God, but his fingerprints are everywhere because he's got a plan to have a Messiah who 
who would come and you read Matthew 1 and you say, I love the reality of God's redemptive plan and the way he used Esther. That's a Christian perspective. And we want to have a Christian perspective and we don't want to fall into a moralistic, kind of moralizing, anti-gospel perspective. We want to know what the gospel is. I think it's probably the most dangerous threat to the glory of Christ and to legitimate Christianity that we would face today. We talked about it at length last time, so I don't want to do it now. Let's move on to another ism that threatens the distinct Christianness of Christianity, and that would be legalism. Legalism is when you try to obey the law, either the Bible law or your law, principles. And if you do these things, then God will accept you. And actually, moralism is a kind of legalism. So the two go hand in hand. Galatians is a great text when it comes to this. Again, we just saw it. This was the issue going on there. It was a form of legalism. And the Apostle Paul is to the place where he even says, if we were to keep reading on, he tells us it's not a different gospel. But in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You say, whoa, what's going on in Galatians? Moralistic legalism is going on in Galatians. Believe in Jesus, so they're going to use the the title Christian, and do these things. Obey these laws, and 2 plus 2 equals 4, salvation. And he's saying, as soon as you do that, you're not actually Christian anymore. That's a damning message you're embracing and promoting because it's all of Christ. Christ perfectly and completely kept the law on your behalf. Stop thinking it's Christ and your law keeping. That's legalism. Legalism is, is, is a horrible, ugly thing that is, is incompatible with Christianity. And that's why Galatians was written. It's written so forcefully and strongly so that we understand that it's all of Christ so we worship Him and honor Him. And the reason we want to do the right things, which we'll talk about later, is because of what He's already done for us. We do want to serve Him, yes. But not to earn favor, but because we already have favor, we want to avoid legalism. And again, remember, sometimes legalism is in the capital L sense. We could say, okay, everybody must believe in Jesus and they must be circumcised according to Old Testament law and then they can be fit for heaven. There's also a lower L legalism. You must believe in Jesus and you must follow these principles that we've come up with to live by a higher standard and then God will accept you. That's legalism. And it's anti-Christian. And the way to deal with legalism is to fix your eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews says at the end of Hebrews, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because you're fixing your eyes on Him and you're seeing, oh, indeed, He did obey the law perfectly. Oh, indeed, He did atone for sins perfectly to the point where He sat down, His work is done, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, that He did rise again from the dead victoriously, even with witnesses. He's done this for me. I will serve him out of gratitude, not debt. 
gratitude. It's just Christian. You know what? I guess I'm just doing Christianity 101. These are just basics. But if the Ephesians could forget their first love, we can too. We can too. Oh yeah, I already know all that stuff. I imagine that's how the Galatians would have thought. We, we, we already know the gospel stuff. We're just moving on to the more advanced stages of things. To the point where they forgot the gospel. We're never going to get done, right? This is review. And I don't think I'm repeating anything, essentially. Number three, a third ism that we looked at last time by way of review, but with some new information, would be narcissism. Narcissism is a fancy ism way of saying self-centeredness, selfishness. And let's do this one quickly. This is when we start to think that somehow everything that happens in my world, so to speak, is for me ultimately. Christianity is for me to feel good as an end in and of itself. Christianity is for me to find fulfillment as an end in and of itself. Christian activity is for me and something I gain as an end in and of itself. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with feeling good. It does happen when you know you're not accountable for your sins anymore. And you've been redeemed. There's nothing wrong with feeling fulfillment because quite frankly, there's great fulfillment in being saved by the blood of the Lamb. But it's about something bigger and you start reading your Bible looking for the bigger thing and the bigger thing is God does everything that he does including saving us, including redeeming us for his name's sake, for his own glory. This is why we love texts like 1 Corinthians 10.31. We love to preach it to our own hearts. We love to preach it to our children's hearts. We love to preach it to one another whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. It's all ultimately about Him. He does what He does for His own namesake because He is God. And so therefore it is for His glory and for His honor. Number four, deism. Deism would be another ism that would try to distract us from fixing our eyes on Jesus and forgetting our first love. Deism is a belief in a higher power, divine being who created the world and has left it alone. He's not sovereign over it and he doesn't care in a personal way. This is deism. I mentioned last time some of our founding fathers were deists. They weren't Christians. Some were, some weren't. The analogy typically is it was like a clock and God wound it up and walked away. This couldn't be further from biblical Christianity. As Christians, we believe that God created and He's involved and He cares, right? Ephesians 1.11, we looked at last time, that He works all things. I like to put my arms out because all things, trying to encompass everything, all things after the counsel of His will. The great thing about that text is it's personal because it's talking about God saving individuals, who are part of a corporate body. And it's awesome because it's all in inclusive as well. Totally sovereign in all things, all things working together in a personal way. See, there are other religions that believe in the sovereignty of God, not deism, but other religions believe in the sovereignty of God, but not sovereignty of God in control of everything and caring about individuals like Romans 8 talks about. So we want to emphasize these things if we're going to act like Christians, if we're going to sound like Christians have sounded through the ages, if we're going to sound like Christians sound and look in the Bible as well. 
Hebrews 1.3, Romans 8.28, Romans 8.29-30, Matthew 10.29-30. We looked at those things last time. And now we're going to move on to new ground number five, inclusivism. Inclusivism. If you wanted the most controversial thing of the day, here it is. According to a Pew study that was recently done, my facts straight here, 2008 Pew Forum survey, 65% of Americans who say they're Christians believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. 37% of the 65% were evangelical Christians. So most professing Christians in our country, not just Christian in name only, even over a third who say, we're Bible-believing Christians, we're evangelicals, believe that other religions will get you to heaven. Well, let's start in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Not God's, God one God and he made everything read the account several weeks ago we looked at Deuteronomy 6 6 4 the Lord our God is one there's only one of these gods it's his it belongs to him and so however we're going to be reconciled to this God somehow has to be what he's affirmed and what his plan is if there were many many gods in many many universes then inclusivism might be an option but if, this is just being logical, I'm not asking you to take this on faith, as we say in our culture, which means shut your brain off, okay? Using your brain, there's one God who created everything, and so we're part of his creation, and there's been a rebellion, right? Keep reading in Genesis. So how, how are we going to make amends? How are we going to bridge the gap? How are we going to be reconciled to this God? Well, this same God has spoken from heaven, and he has said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased, read the Gospel accounts, listen to Him. Getting warmer. What's the plan? And now if you would turn with me in your Bible to John 14.6. John 14.6. If you are an inclusivist, you don't like this verse, you wish there was not manuscript evidence to support its authenticity, but you know if you've looked, there is. We're supposed to listen to this Jesus in whom this God who created everything is well pleased and who owns this planet and quite frankly owns us and we've been made in His image so a lot of this is making a lot of sense. In John fourteen six, you probably know it well. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The son we're supposed to listen to has spoken and he said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Peter's going to elaborate on this in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 and say there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Paul weighs in on this as well in 1 Timothy and says there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's everywhere. And it starts with monotheism. 
Creator provides His Son as a Redeemer. And then Great Commission ties it all together as well because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, right? Matthew 28, 18. And then He says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the inclusive side of things. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to, to observe all that I, Jesus, commanded them, commanded you. It's really straightforward. It's really clear. And how about this? This is what Christians believe. This is what Christians have believed. That Jesus Christ is the Savior. And that to be reconciled to God, you must believe in Christ. This is Christianity 101 basics. It's not politically correct. But it's not illogical either. Makes sense. And then think, if there are other ways, which right now the majority of American professing Christians are saying, if there are other ways, actually, you do need to take it on faith, i.e., shut your brain off because it doesn't make sense. That the Father would send His Son that the Father would pour out His undiluted wrath upon the Son to the point where He is screaming in agony and Isaiah the prophet says the Son is marred more than any man. And there are other ways. This God is awful. And it's not even a way I would suggest to you. And the Son, who voluntarily comes to earth and humbles Himself and gives Himself up, He said Himself, no one takes my life from me, I will give it up, right? The Son, the Father is awful and the Son is an idiot. Because there are other ways, don't you know? Obviously, I don't believe the Father is awful and I don't believe the Son is stupid. But you've got to come to those kind of conclusions if you don't take Christianity for what it says. Not too long ago, I talked to a man about this and it was a very interesting interaction and I was thankful for it. This man was buying my motorcycle. Sad day. <laughs> Big biker guy, nice guy, like this guy. Big beard, just kind of tough guy. He's got his younger nephew with him. And uh, we were talking about different things, and he wanted my bike badly. And he said, what do you do anyway? So I told him, he said, I'm a preacher. You're a blankety-blank, blank, blank, blankety-blank, blank, what? <laughs> you got to be blankety-blank kidding me. Well, I'll be a blankety-blank, blank, 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 blank. So then I knew we connected. <laughs> okay, we, we had some rapport going on in my circle, my street. He said, well, he said, uh, you know, I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual. 
Now, coming from this big, you know, biker dude with his black leather coat on, it looks, he seems so funny. It was like a four-year-old girl voice coming out of this big guy, you know. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. You know, it's like... <laughs> so I said to him, I said, uh, could you tell me what that means? <laughs> and I, This is why I really like the guy. The guy, he, he did this and he laughed. He goes, no. And his nephew was loving every second of it because, and you know, he's just a big intimidated guy. And I was calling his bluff, going, "Come on." And the nephew said, "We need to go to this guy's church. I like this guy." <laughs> so I keep looking for my bike to show up, wishing I had an extra key that I kept. But anyway, <laughs> but then he did say seriously. He said, "You know, I just can't quite, I can't quite stomach this." Uh, or something like this. He said, I can't buy this reality that you have to believe in Jesus and, and that's the only way. And I said, I, I hear what you're saying. I said, you know, but it's, it's kind of tough for me to conclude that Jesus was anything other than an idiot because he said he was the only way and then he gave himself up to be crucified. I think he's a nut job if he's not the Savior. And I'm not willing to say he's a nut job. And he said, I guess I'm not either. So, I'm looking for the bike. <laughs> and then we're at least able to talk about the gospel. So we're living in this kind of climate, and people are regurgitating what they've heard, and I would just encourage you, pastorally, to call their bluff. Respectfully, nicely, with rapport. Call their bluff on it and talk to them about why it does make sense that this amazing, loving God sent His Son. And this amazing, loving Son gave Himself up for us while we were yet sinners. It's good news. And my friends, it's distinctly Christian. It's essential to Christianity. Otherwise, Christianity is really a bunch of nonsense. Just one more thing about this, because it is negative, I know, because we're saying if, since there's one God and one Savior, you have to believe in Him, and you're even going to say you don't believe in other ways. That's just part of what happens. If you're for this, you're naturally against this. If you say, I believe in one God who eternally exists, Alpha and Omega, you don't believe in any other gods. If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by Him, anyone who says anything else, you're by necessity opposed to. Years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you like his writings and his preaching, medical doctor turned preacher in London. They call him the doctor. Lloyd-Jones wrote a little book called What is an Evangelical? Very helpful little book. Easy to read, maybe one or two sittings. And Lloyd-Jones points out the fact that evangelicals, meaning what makes a real Christian is what he's really getting at, are not only committed to what they're for, but by logical necessity, they're committed 
to be against certain things because they can't coexist together when they're not compatible. I commend the book to you. It's a helpful book. I don't want to be all against everything. But as soon as we start saying and kind of chanting as our mantra, since we're sounding more like Hindus, I'm going to say mantra, we're not a church that's against things. We're just for Jesus. It sounds good. But it's a load of dung. It doesn't even make sense. We are so for Christ's work on our behalf that was perfect and complete in every way and that this great, amazing Christ says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You don't have to try to earn it yourself anymore, which is impossible. Come to me and I will relieve you of that burden and load. I am so for that that if you say there's another way where you can earn your way, I'm going to say I'm totally, absolutely, diametrically opposed to that because it's another gospel that's not really the gospel. So it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's part of what gives us Christianness as Christians. Let's move on to number six, mysticism. Did I say the last one was controversial? Mysticism. Just in, in basic form, the essence of mysticism within Christianity is when you have something extra, something more. And this has kind of gotten a free pass more so lately than historically. When you say, well, that's fine, you've got Christ, but I was visited by an angel. That's fine. You've got Jesus, but God talks to me. Yeah, you've got a Bible. You've got Christ, but I've had something that you haven't had. It's mysticism. Something extra. It's not biblical. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from some unique kind of thing that you've undergone that no one else has undergone. And historically, it ends up being mysticism. And it's a controversial issue because it's challenging some experiences. Now, let's begin by, if you're in Galatians, let's go to Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians to the right, Philippians, Colossians. And I hate to do it, but I'll give you another ism you don't have to put on the list. But Colossians is dealing with a form of mysticism called asceticism. And that you are going to go to the higher level by doing without certain things maybe or having extra experiences maybe. But either way, there are haves, those who have had the extra blessing or the extra experience or the extra something, and there are have-nots, you know, those who are Christians. And Paul has got to take the gloves off and deal with this issue because it's going to create havoc in the church and all kinds of problems because people are actually thinking that it's one thing to have Christ, but you actually need something more than Christ. And after warning them in 2, 8, and 9, which is very helpful, but for the sake of time, we'll jump right to 10, which is the high point where he says, but you have been filled, literally made complete or perfected would even be the idea of the Greek word. The the cup is totally full. You don't need anything else. You have been made, you have been filled in him, made complete, perfected, who is the head of all rule and authority. Please notice the, the, the broadness of it. He has all rule and authority, 
And then it says, who is the head? And so it can't get any higher. You know, you're, you're talking about Christ who, who, who's above all and who has all. And you know what? In Him, by faith, you have been made full. You've been made complete. That There's no more room in your cup. It's totally full if you're a Christian. And so to then suggest that there are some, oh, extraordinary holy man, right? There are some who have extra is an impossibility. It can't be done because you can't get any more in the cup because yours is totally full because you're in Christ and He is above everything. And so it's going to address the issue of mysticism. And so I would just caution you about saying to people or thinking, well, that person's just a Christian. Now, we might be growing at different levels in our understanding of things to the point where Jesus is saying, do you not understand, <laughs> right, like today? But to seek something more than Jesus is in the end seeking something less. Because you haven't come to grips with the reality that you've already got a full cup. You don't need something more. In fact, to say that you need something more than Jesus is actually an assault on Jesus, and we don't want to go there. Maybe another really helpful text would be Hebrews chapter 1, because it deals with this matter of God speaking to us. And Hebrews is toward the end of the Bible if you're just starting to get acclimated to the Bible and you can back up. Third John, Second John, First John, and James, and Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one is very helpful. As you're turning there, you might want to jot down Second Peter chapter one verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So it's another inclusive kind of broad, big statement regarding sufficiency in Christ. Hebrews 1 is helpful. Look what it says in verse 1. Long ago, so reaching way back, at at many times and in many ways, so it's very diverse and it's plentiful, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has spoken to us. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Do notice, prophets are impressive. They're unique guys. But now it's His Son more exciting, more significant, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. It doesn't get any bigger. It's, you don't get any more important. He smokes the prophets, right? And this is huge that God reveals Himself through the prophets, and this is amazing. But we're, we're way beyond that. God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son, the Creator, Okay? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by, by the power, by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So He's the perfect atoning one. Prophets could never do that. He's there at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become a, as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's just a great text to go back to again and again and again when I'm tempted to seek something more than Jesus. You don't get more. You can't get more. Maybe you don't understand all that He's done. I'm there. But you can't get more. 
God has spoken in these last days. As if to say there's an exclamation point, right? We don't need more. We have Christ. We don't need something extra. We have Christ. We don't need mysticism that just divides the body of Christ into haves and have-nots. We have Christ. Just as a reminder, too, even from this text, God is a speaking God. God can speak anytime He wants to to anyone granted. And He certainly leads us by the power of His Spirit. Absolutely. Different sermon, different time. But do remember, when you read your Bible and look historically, God is not, has not been historically in the business of speaking directly to everyone all the time. That is abnormal. That is unique for him to do something else. It's very interesting to see. Not too many years ago, the, the big fad was the Experiencing God books. Some helpful things there, but some very dangerous things. Taking the church by storm, the trend, it's gone. And it was essentially saying that if you weren't experiencing God the way Moses did, let's say, then you're a have-not. Your intelligence has just been insulted. Please think as a Christian with your Bible open. Moses was very unique. Yes, Moses had a mountaintop experience with God. But Moses wasn't the only Israelite. What about all those other people? I don't think they were second class. But Moses had a unique kind of experience. Just like Isaiah the prophet had a unique kind of experience. God has spoken through his prophets. There's no question about that. But don't be... Don't be intimidated. Just remember, you know what? That, that, that's actually a unique thing. And then we move throughout all those unique things as God has revealed himself. And now the climax, the high point of it all is he's spoken through his son. But that's not enough. I need something. Oh, don't go there. Don't go there in a million years. You don't get any more. You actually get less if you try to get more. Now maybe to throw one more passage into this kind of challenge is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. As we want to fight mysticism by looking at Christ and finding our fulfillment in Christ, 2 Timothy 3.16 is, is a really important verse to me because I'm a pastor and it's written in a pastoral letter, but I think it's probably important to you too if you're a Christian because of the significance to all of us. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, you probably know it fairly well. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then verse 17 says that the man of God may be competent or adequate, equipped for every good work. That tells me, equipped for every good work, but I have what I need as far as a word from God. I don't need more words from God. And if I suggest to you that I do need more words from God, then I don't think I believe 2 Timothy 
because 2 Timothy 3.17 is having me know that I don't need any more because I've been equipped for every good work. If you're not connecting the dots on this, the Bible is claiming sufficiency. And if I stand before you and say, here's what we should do as a church, I know this is what we should do as a church because God told me this is what we should do as a church. At best, you should be really, really nervous. Because if God is having to tell me things by direct revelation, I'm going to suggest to you that 2 Timothy 3.17 actually isn't true. I don't need God to give me direct revelation, and I don't mean that in a crass or trivial way. I don't need more revelation because I have all the revelation I need. That's the meaning of and the significance of 2 Timothy 3.17. If you're thinking now, is Pat saying God can't do things? I'm not saying that. God can do whatever He wants to do. But I don't think God is going to contradict Himself. And if he said it's going to equip you for every good work, then I think it's going to. I think mysticism is getting a free pass too many times, not suggesting that God doesn't lead us. He does lead us. He cares for us. Not that he can't speak. He can. But looking at history, it's very unique for him to do that. And now we have something that says it's sufficient because of Christ and written revelation. I'm not looking for more. I'm looking to understand what I've got. Praying, God, give me uh, illumination by the power of your Spirit to understand. And, and then based upon what we do read in your Scriptures, God, give us wisdom knowing how to apply it so we can move forward. And I believe with all my heart, God gives it because James says, ask expectantly. And what I'm suggesting to you is not what all Christians have always believed throughout the ages. But since the leaving of the apostles and the inscripturation of their writings, the Christians you're going to be drawn toward in history are going to be the Christians who are saying the same thing. And the ones who are saying God is giving something more are the ones who end up doing things like denying the Trinity, denying the humanity of Christ. Good company is with a commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture at least historically speaking. Let's do one more. Let's do one more ism and then we'll wrap things up and let's call it liberalism. Liberalism. See, I would stop at first hour we went through number seven and I don't want this to be a mystical kind of thing where we have haves and have nots. Doesn't even make sense. Liberalism. And I mean theological liberalism. Please be careful when you talk to your friends who aren't Christians and you talk about how you're against liberalism and they're going to think you're just, you know, against Democrats, okay? It's not what we're talking about. And I seriously try to be careful with that and say theological liberalism because our calling in life is not politics. That's not what we've been called to be and do as Christians. And so theological liberalism, okay? Push rewind about 100 or so years ago. You can go further than that. But really trendy would be, uh, you might call it modernism. And then modernism is saying you can solve everything through science. Science is sovereign. And then the church is intimidated. And before you know it, you have theological liberalism. And so you saw it infiltrate all the major denominations, 
really none of them were left untouched. There were those who stood against the tide, but every major denomination had those who would be, they would divide. There would be those who were the theological liberals and the theological conservatives, and for the most part, the liberals kept the cash and kept the buildings. That's why we have big, cool-looking, empty churches today. Okay, theological liberalism of a hundred or so years ago. And it's one of my favorite times in, in church history. I lo- that's why I love to learn about Princeton Seminary, where they had the major division, the old school, B.B. Warfield, and J. Gresham Machen, and Charles Hodge, and all of these people. And they said, no. Christianity is committed to things like the deity of Christ. Christianity is committed to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is committed to the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Christianity is committed to and is about the exclusivity of Christ, that you must believe in Him and Him alone to be saved. And on and on the list went, kind of like our list here. And there was the major division, theological liberalism. And we'd like to say that's a chapter uh, of days gone by and the division was made and the evangelicals said, we will believe the Bible. But it's back. Today, what plagues evangelicalism, which was the conservative break between theological liberalism a long time ago, the evangelicals smell like theological liberals of 100 years ago. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. If you need some summer reading, read J. Gresham Machen's book called Christianity and Liberalism. You can get it free online. It's not a hard read. The illustrations are going to be antiquated, and you're going to say, who, who is Fosdick? Who are these people? So the names have been changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> but it's the same issue. It's the same stuff we're facing, but it's not in those big dead churches because they died a long time ago. It's in the big evangelical churches, and it's the same stuff. It's absolutely shocking. And it's absolutely amazing to see that this same stuff is coming around, and it's not anything different than what it once was. It kind of blows my mind because I, I, just, I guess I'm too optimistic. I think too highly of people. I think, okay, we went through that. We understand that. That'll never happen again because it's so clear. And it's like we'd have never even read history. It's just coming again. It just has a different face. And you think, I've met you before. You just had a different face and a different name. One outstanding feature, and we'll try to draw this all back to a conclusion from where we started. One outstanding feature of theological liberalism is moralism. Remember at the beginning we talked about moralism where if you just follow examples of Bible characters, it's going to be okay with you. That's moralism because there's no place for atonement, blood, substitutionary death, wrath of God being poured out on the Son. That is something moralism despises, and theological liberalism despises it too. Listen to this quotation from Machen himself. It sounds just like what we deal with today. Jay Gresham, oh, here we go. It seems never to have occurred to the adherents of this religion, he calls it the imitation of Jesus' religion, that there is such a thing as sin, and that sin places an awful gulf between man and God. But those convictions, though they are unpopular at the present time, this is 1932, 
are certainly quite central in the Christian religion. From the beginning, Christianity was the religion of the broken heart. It is based upon the conviction that there is an awful gulf between man and God which none but God can bridge. Please get this part. This is what I've underlined. Of what avail without the redeeming acts of God are the lofty ideals of psalmists and prophets? All the teaching and example of Jesus. See, what he's saying is, if you've got no atoning sacrifice, where God's wrath is satisfied because sin is the problem, what good are all the principles from the psalmist? What what good are all the principles from the prophets? What good is the moral example of Jesus? Then he says, in themselves they can bring us nothing but despair. We Christians are not interested merely in what God commands, but also in what God did. In the triumphant indicative, he says, what has been done by Christ outside of us for us. He's spot on. He's dead on. Remember, Christianity at its core is not about following moral examples. First of all, David isn't so moral. And second of all, Christ, who is moral, still can't be followed by you to a good enough degree because you're a sinner and he's the God-man. And so if I preach this as gospel, just be like Jesus. What would Jesus do, essence of our faith? If you're a thinking man, woman, or child, you will only eventually despair. You will say, I can't be Christ-like enough. I can't do it, Pastor. You give me all these principles from the life of Jesus, and I'm just beating my head against the wall. I'm never going to make it. We need the triumphant indicative. Christ died, past tense, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. We need more than an example. We need a substitute. We need a victor. We need someone who did it all for us is what we need. And when I say... Not that long ago, in print, in a book review, the essence of Christianity is not following Jesus. People freak out. But if I say the essence of Christianity is following Jesus, you should freak out. The essence of Christianity is the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then, because of what he's done, out of gratitude and thanksgiving, we want to follow Jesus. We'll talk about that in the next time we're together. I'm not not even coming close to suggesting that we're not supposed to follow Jesus. We are supposed to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but that's not the essence of it all. That's in response to what he's already done for us. And so it is vital, it is essential, but if you confuse the two, you have a religion other than Christianity. 
First you have the triumphant, as Machen says, indicative. Christ died for our sins. Then you have the imperatives. Okay, those of you who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, follow Him. There's a huge difference between the two. Huge. Today, old school liberalism is alive and well. And how about this? It's the most trendy thing going in the church. It's called the emergent church movement. And you know what it is? It's recooked leftovers. It's old school theological liberalism that looks cooler. That's all it is. When I read Rob Bell's book, I felt like everything I learned from Machen from 1923 came into play. It's the same thing. What's so interesting is today, emergent movement, even though we're not using the term anymore because it's not cool anymore, they want to be all into postmodernism. But that's already gone. It's something else. But it's still postmodernism. One thing the emergent movement despises today is modernism, where we can actually know things. What's interesting is, in theological terms, the very theology that the postmoderns are believing is theological modernism. The very thing they say they despise is the very thing they're embracing. And so this is on. This is cool. This is hip. This is where it's at. But if you read Rob Bell's book, he's just quoting liberals. It's the same old stuff. The essence of Christianity is to be Jesus-like. We need to stop trying to convert people we would only stop trying to do that and we would just tell them to act like Jesus and to show them Jesus. That's Harry Emerson Fosdick from the early 1900s, a foaming at the mouth, flaming liberal who was against the gospel. It's exactly what he taught. My friends, I am motivated to love Christ. We are for Him. We want to be for Him like we've never been before. Before, for Him. But if we are for Him, we will challenge and we will oppose all imposter Christs, even if they reside in our own hearts. So let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and for time to talk about these things and to be able to think even about things that have happened historically that are happening now and they're the same things and we should know better and help us to know better and help us to be wise and help us to have such a bleeding heart passion for Christ that we would want to see Him glorified and Him honored above all other things and above all other movements and that by Your grace we might see another year as a church, another day as a church, another generation as a church where the Gospels become more in focus than ever before. May this be true. Thank You for Christ. Thank You for His obedience on the cross. Thank You for His obedience in His life. And thank You for His powerful resurrection May we trust in Him and Him alone. In His name we pray, amen.